Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 170, Enlightened Society. We're joined this week by the president of Shambhala, Richard Riach, to explore what it means to aspire toward an enlightened society. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm recording live today at the Boulder Shambhala Center. We're up in the top floor in a suite that I've never seen, and looks like there's some pretty amazing pictures of Chögyam Trungpa in here and some calligraphy work. The right setting for our interview today with Richard Riach. He's the president of Shambhala currently, and he's got a long history not only as a spiritual practitioner and leader, but also as a human rights leader. He was uh, formerly the global media chief of Amnesty and also has held and holds now a host of other leadership positions for various human rights and environmentalism organizations. So, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy teaching and traveling and doing work. Thanks for chatting with us today. It's my pleasure to join you. And uh, probably when you broadcast this, um, it won't be... um the 20th of uh, April, but I'm sure that all the Buddhist geeks out there will be delighted to know that we recorded this on 420, and uh, instead of being out at the CU campus <laughs> in a blinding haze of uh, wondrous smoke, we are here where the only smoke is incense. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so today, um, I thought it'd be really interesting to speak with you about topics that I know you've spent a lot of time considering and that are probably close to your heart. The first was the original idea that Chögyam Trungpa taught a lot on of enlightened society. Mm-hmm. And the name Shambhala itself, I know, is a reference to Shangri-La, which is a mythical sort of enlightened culture, an Asian culture that existed somewhere where everyone was sort of enlightened. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as you understand it, what was Trungpa's vision or his sort of teaching on this idea of enlightened society? Mm. Well... Trungpa Rinpoche, as I think everybody knows, was an extraordinary figure in the history of the Tibetan Buddhist world. And uh, he said that when the Chinese army first entered Tibet, when he was a young man, he was in his teens, as soon as he heard this news, he said that he immediately realized that there had to be another way to organize human society. And he said that from that moment what he called his Shambhala vision, never waned. So whereas, you know, some strands within, uh, you know, the huge family of of Buddhism are to some extent, you could say, like a personal path, such as the path of the yogi or the path of the solitary scholar, which, of course, does not mean that the motivation of those practitioners is not to help vast numbers of human beings, but the manifestation tends to be more personal and more individual. Well, in contrast to that, you could say that Chogyam Trungpa's vision, as he described it at that moment, was in fact uh, profoundly societal. That he was concerned with the profound issues of uh, human aggression, what he referred to later as uh, 
you know, manifestations of materialism. He talked about our living in a dark age. And part of the uh, legend of Shambhala, you could say, is that, that it is precisely in such dark times which are characterized by uh, extreme aggression and uh, extreme greed that these precious teachings arise. And the essence of those teachings are said to lay the foundation for, as you said, enlightened society. So rather than the notion that um, you get enlightened first and then, as it were, help society, really embedded in this um, extraordinary set of teachings is the notion of group enlightenment. So uh, even within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, when he came to the West, Trungpa Rinpoche was, you know, some might say he was like a heretic, or some might say he was, uh, you know, just an iconoclast, because, for example, so much of the practice had been uh, individual. Even in the large monasteries, a tremendous amount of the practice is done, especially the advanced practices on one's own, and one tends to gather for large ceremonies, and that's most photographers photograph, but a tremendous amount of the practice takes place in monks' uh, small rooms. Well, from the social point of view, Trungpa Rinpoche, as soon as he came to the West, really began to look at group meditation. And uh, although many of us would take uh, group meditation now as a, you know, kind of normal, what's so surprising, we don't realize what a break it was for him to introduce this, because he was interested not just in bringing people together to hear the teachings and then go off and practice them on their own for their own benefit, but of actually creating a completely different social environment, and not just for those practitioners, but actually for the whole of humanity. Nice. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about that term group enlightenment, because it seems like there's something in that that's very fascinating. I don't know what it is. Well, I think... um, since we're all um, Buddhists here, and uh, at least some of us are geeks, we would have had the experience that, supposing you're, you're very fresh in the experience of meditation, and you go to a meditation session where, say, there's 10 other people or 20 other people or whatever, you might be on the inside literally trying to crawl outside your skin. You might be experiencing um, intense uh, emotion, you might be experiencing, a, you know, a profound wave of, like, self-hatred. And you would go, I've got to get out of here. I absolutely have to get out of here. Well, if you were all on your own, that's what you do. You just get out of there. But I think we all know that because we're sitting with 10 or 20 or sometimes it's a very small group, five other people, who are all trying to do the same practice, there's a curious thing which happens which is, first of all, you don't want to be the first to leave. It's kind of like chickening out. And actually, the energy of everybody else supports you in your practice. And you may not realize, but your energy, too, is supporting the others in the practice. So this really goes to the heart of what in the classical Buddhist tradition is called Sangha. And Sangha means, literally in Sanskrit, holding together. And, you know, the Buddha realized that the path that he had traveled himself and that he was offering to others was literally going against the stream of the society that he was born into. And 
is very hard to be all on your own going against the stream. You really need the companionship and the strength of fellow practitioners. So the notion here, which has been held by our lineage, is, for example, if you go to an intensive meditation practice program, you are actually all kind of creating a mutually supportive energy field, which lifts everyone together, sort of the way the sea comes in and lifts all the boats. And that's the notion here of a kind of group enlightenment. We could all get there together. That's really fascinating. As I hear you describe that, it makes total sense. I was recently on a Zen session, and there's a period where the teacher really emphasized not moving. And I swear, I thought I was going to die, but I wasn't going to be the first one to move in there. So it sounds something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's the same principle as the marathon. Most people, you know, they train hard for it and everything. But on the day, it's actually this gigantic energy field of, you know, thousands of others doing the same thing and the people cheering along the way that carries you through. You hit the wall and you get across the finish line. Nice. I didn't want to stop just at Chegyam Trungpa's original vision. I wanted to also talk to you about how that vision has continued to change, maybe even evolve under the leadership of Sakyam Mipam, under leadership of yourself and many other teachers and, mm. um, and leaders. So maybe could you say a little bit about that and yes. how it's changed? Well, I think there's an interesting sort of historical point here, which was that when uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche came to the West, he initially began teaching what you could call classical Tibetan Buddhist teachings and uh, offering those sorts of practices. And uh, it was only after a few years that he then said, there is another set of teachings which emanated from the Buddha, but were specifically given to, it is said, the first king of Shambhala. It is said that the first king of Shambhala, this legendary or perhaps historical kingdom to which he referred, came to the Buddha and said, look, you know, you're gathering all these followers. They're all wearing their saffron robes. I can't follow that path because I have a kingdom to run. Are there any teachings you can give me that would be helpful for my kingdom? And the Buddha is said to have sort of dismissed his entourage of monastics, as we would now call them, and conferred upon the king of uh, Shambhala uh, what we now call the Kalachakra Tantra, which is one of the most profound teachings in the uh, Vajrayana tradition. We were talking about this societal vision. It really is a set of teachings and practices which relates to how would he, as a king, lead his society when we talk about group enlightenment, you know, to, I'm not quite sure what the adjective for a city is here, but uh, it would be some uh, early Asian version of uh, urban <laughs> enlightenment. So he, he told uh, the, the people that he was teaching in the West, you know, in addition to all the these classical Tibetan Buddhist teachings, which essentially are part of the monastic tradition and the yogic tradition, I also have these other teachings which the Buddha gave to King Dawazampo. You know, it was sort of profoundly shocking because it's a little different because the Buddha taught in so many different ways. Of course, the essence of these teachings is the same. Uh, both of these traditions have flourished within Shambhala, but what makes Shambhala distinctive these days is that there has been a growing sort of flowering of these uh, Shambhala teachings. We refer to the Shambhala tradition now as the Shambhala Buddhist tradition to indicate that the fountainhead 
of these teachings is still Lord Buddha. But the whole tradition of the Shambhala teachings, which often is referred to as the um, cultivation of the warrior bodhisattva path, is what has really come to the fore. And I think sometimes when uh, you know other Buddhists hear this term warrior bodhisattva, it sounds like they're experiencing uh, cognitive dissonance. You know, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Buddhists are against war. You know, what's with this warrior bodhisattva thing? The key point here is that um, when we talk about the profound tradition of the genuine great warrior, this is ultimately what the bravery, you could say, or the courage of that sort of warrior is not to fear oneself and not to fear others. Because the, the swamp which gives birth to aggression and in which it festers is fear. So here is a notion of a fearlessness, which is, does not mean that we're not afraid of anything. We're not even afraid of our own fear. And that, combined with the tradition of the bodhisattva serving all sentient beings, creates a, an extraordinary quality of vulnerability and gentleness, which ultimately is far more powerful, both in terms of creating a good human society, being able to work with others, being able to lead others, and ultimately being able to transform aggression into uh, sanity and uh, compassion. And are there any specific um, forms that have emerged to support that vision? You, you sort of mentioned a certain aspect of the Shambhala teachings flourishing. Are there any sort of new forms that have come along with that? Well, for example, quite early on, and we follow this tradition, Chogyam Trumpa insisted that the walls of the Shambhala Center should be painted white. And so when he would invite uh, distinguished uh, Tibetan teachers who were first coming to America, for example, from Tibet, who were used to having their monasteries red, and they would come in and, and they go, uh, wait a minute, I thought we were coming to you know, like a Buddhist place and the walls are white. It was hard for us as Westerners to understand the level of undoubted shock that this produced. And um, of course, the, the color white, which he asked that the walls be painted in, was to represent one of the highest teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which is uh, the teaching on uh, primordial purity, which is that from uh, beginningless time, which is also endless, uh, all beings and all uh, phenomena are fundamentally and inherently pure or wholesome. There is nothing to fear from the ground or indeed the complexity of all phenomena. So in fact, he was teaching at an extraordinarily high level by painting the walls white. One of the things that you've been engaged in for years now and still are engaged in is in the field of human rights and activism, environmentalism. I mentioned um, your position at Amnesty. And, mm. um, so you clearly have like a really hands-on direct experience with this. Yes. Which isn't that, I, I would say it's not that common to see a leader of a spiritual organization that has so much experience also in that field. That's true. So I wanted to ask you if you found any parallels since you've been so deeply involved with both fields between the path of the activist and then the, the contemplative path. Yeah. You know, they have certain characteristics in common. They are uh, disappointing. 
They are um, painful. They're bewildering. And uh, they both have a sense of hopelessness. I think where this kind of comes together is uh, kind of like your life is a mess and uh, you decide, oh, I need to become a spiritual person. So you head off to your Dharma center and you are intent on becoming a spiritual person and you have a fixed idea about what a spiritual person is or more importantly should be like. And then you meet a bunch of wackos. It's not immediately obvious that they're wackos because you're all meditating away together, but it soon becomes clear over the tea break and certainly once a fight breaks out in the kitchen that there are some, you know, really disturbed people there. And then the idea crosses your mind that, you know, you might be completely at home there. And for a lot of people, this kind of encounter is, uh, you know, really um, shattering. Because as someone uh, said to me recently, they came to an older gentleman who came to one of our centers and he, he came to tell me how disappointed he was because he'd been looking for holy people and he thought you know that he would find them you know in Shambhala and he hadn't found any and so you know it was almost like we were doing false advertising the same thing is you know like you think about yourself being a mess well it's not difficult to listen to a podcast or or go on the internet or watch the tv whatever and immediately conclude that the world is a mess so with that same tremendous kind of Prince Valiant or Don Quixote quality, you set off to fix the world in the same way that you were going to fix yourself by becoming a spiritual person. And then you have a very clear idea about how those people should be or how the world should function. So you go with this tremendous idealistic uh, attitude off to your local whatever, you know, environmental group or human rights group or, uh, you know, stop uh, drug abuse group or whatever it is you're motivated to do. And guess what? You find a bunch of wackos there. And it might not be obvious that they're wackos just the minute you walk in the door and you're doing some work and somebody has some pious sounding words about saving the whale or something. But when you get down to work, you find at least as high a level of aggression, distrust, mistrust, interpersonal conflict, greed, confusion, and violence in that outfit as you thought you were trying to escape from. And so the level of disappointment then can be even more stunning because then you're led into like a complete sense, well, my God, these people, you know, I thought these people were all like me. They all want to save the world. And then I find out, you know, I'm with a bunch of wackos. And so it's, it's almost a complete intersection with your experience when you're at the meditation center. And then you have to either go, well, look, either I'm the only pure and trustworthy person on the planet with a clear idea about spiritual life and uh, how to fix the planet. Or the bad news is that the next person who's like me who comes in through the doors, whether it's to your Dharma Center or to your Save the World group, is going to see you're just one of the wackos too. And this is a very, I've tried to describe it in kind of lighthearted terms, this is very shattering for a lot of people. This is the foundation of the bitterness and the burnout and the self-hatred and the um, deep despair and hopelessness that you encounter among people who say to you, I tried that. Whether they're referring to meditation or whether they're referring to, uh, you know, for example, trying to stop the Iraq war and who conclude that there's no point in engaging in politics because the whole situation is corrupt. 
or there's no point in following a spiritual path because the kind of people you meet are, you know, so weird. So there is a profound personal journey that we all have to go through. Now, you know, there's many ways of characterizing that journey, but, you know, at the heart of it, you could say that uh, it's the journey from arrogance to humility. You know, one of the greatest challenges, if you think about the world of human rights, war, environmental destruction, the cruelty that we are capable of inflicting on each other or on planet Earth comes from a profound level of self-absorption and arrogance, which reduces uh, other people, other races, other cultures, and other life forms to mere things which we seek to control and are quite comfortable about destroying. And it's a long and a profound journey to get to the point where you actually have the humility to be willing to share the planet with people who think differently to you, who look differently to you, and to other species who behave differently. And it's a very touching, you know, in the, in the history of Zen Buddhism, for example, there's the great Zen master Dogen who went to uh, China for many years, which of course was the sort of heartland in uh, Eastern Asia for the meditation tradition. And when he came back to Japan, after these years of extraordinary study, one of his fellow monastics asked him what he'd learned. And he said, I have come back with empty hands. All I learned was a little gentleness. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.